Hello and welcome to Retrospecticus, a Simpsons and History podcast. You're listening to episode 25, Side Barre We Was. Hey, hey, listeners! I'm Gareth Hirons. And I'm Tom Williamson. And welcome to Retrospecticus, the Simpsons and modern history together at last. In each edition, we'll discuss an episode of The Simpsons and a major historical happening from the time the episode first aired in the US. You'll go where we go. Streak when we streak. Burn your bra when we burn our bras. Today I'll be talking about Season 2, Episode 12, The Way We Was, our first flashback episode, and the 25th episode of Retrospecticus. The Way We Was originally aired on January the 31st, 1991. And after my break last time to talk about the fun game, Street Fighter 2, I'm back to talking about colonialism, coups, war, genocide and death. I'll be telling the story of the military dictator Said Barre, who was removed from his position of President of Somalia on January 26, 1991, just five days before The Way We Was first aired. Excellent. If you'd like to give us the Spanish exposition, you can tweet us at underscore retrospecticus. Don't forget the underscore, because we certainly can't. Or send us an eel to podcast at retrospecticus.org. Just a little bit of an explanation about some possible sound issues on this edition. <laughs> We're in the middle of a very British heatwave, yep. um, so I'm not shutting the windows, but all of the seagulls in Liverpool have decided <laughs> to have a party in my courtyard. <laughs> yep, yep, you'll hear even more noises from the lighthouse this time, I'm afraid. So... The air date of this episode was January the 31st, 1991. But Gareth, I hear you cry. In fact, I think that's what some of the seagulls are saying. <laughs> but Gareth, what was the UK number one when it was released? Well, it's a special one for me, as it's an actor genuinely one of my favourite bands and one of the very few chart toppers with a real air of danger and anarchy about them. It's KLF, here apparently featuring the Children of the Revolution with 3AM Eternal. Okay, I don't know that one. Oh, right. Okay. Well, get ready for uh, when I tweet the video out. Okay. So let's start with this lot. Formed in 1987 by Bill Kingboy D. Drummond and Jimmy Rockman Rock Corty, the KLF had previously released records as The Jams, The Justified Agents of Moo Moo, and perhaps most famously, The Time Lords, who had a number one single in 1988 with Doctor in the TARDIS. Although, for promotional purposes, the band was fronted by a 1968 Ford Galaxy police car named Ford Time Lord. <laughs> the track's journey to number one, and the cars, I suppose, inspired the 1989 book The Manual, How to Have a Number One Hit the Easy Way, which is required reading for anyone with an interest in the hit-making process, even if the technology involved has changed massively since it was written. Up until this point, they'd largely been hip-hop pranksters and inveterate samplers, which is a hell of a dismissal of their earlier work, but I've not got that much time to talk about them, so a glib summation is the best I can do with what I've got. The KLF was an attempt to make pure dance music, something more overtly difficult and underground than their previous works, and fitted in well with the acid house movement of the time, along with other nascent EDM forms such as trance and ambient. Hmm. Their track, What Time Is Love?, was picked up by all the right DJs and became a club smash, leading to that song being made into a more chart-oriented version, mm. along with Last Train to Trans Central and this song, 3AM Eternal. Uh, the three songs are referred to as their Stadium House Trilogy uh, and have become their calling cards. 
3AM Eternal was their only UK number one under the KLF name, and it is glorious. Danceable, effortlessly cool, stunningly well orchestrated, and lyrically both enigmatic and self-aggrandizing. It is perfect pop. <laughs> it is perfect punk. And bizarrely, it is authentically and undeniably both British and Scottish in its execution. Ooh, okay. When it works, it works. And this really works. Right. And we'll have to get you a listen to it at some stage. Yeah, I'll, I'll, have, to, I'll have to listen out for it when it turns up on the Retrospective Spotify playlist. Uh, it's not going to, because I can't find it on Spotify. Oh, no. Um, if any, uh, any of our listeners can find us, you know, you know where the uh, eel's meant to go. Yeah. Uh, but I'll certainly get the video out. Brilliant. Um, so this here, this is the KLF atop the music business pile. The peak of their exposure, the biggest singles act in the world, arguably, with the right sound in the right place at the right time. And they did an awful lot more in a very short space of time after this. But just this once, I'm not going to shoot myself in the foot, and I'm actually planning ahead. We'll be hearing from the KLF again on this podcast in the not-too-distant future. And at that stage, I'll tell you what happened next. Oh, okay. But for now... Returning to the episode, the US viewership put its 16th in the overall ratings for the week with a Nielsen of 15.6, equivalent to 14.5 million households. It was the top show on Fox, which basically goes without saying at the minute. Mm -hmm. uh, the production number was 7F12, and the credited writers are Al Jean and Mike Reese. As discussed in episode 4, there's no disgrace like Manuel Noriega. Mm -hmm. And Sam Simon, as discussed in episode 1, Simpsons roasting on a Romanian revolution. <laughs> The chalkboard gag was, I will not get very far with that attitude. And the couch gag was, they sit on the couch, which crashes through the floor. Mm. I should say, I got retweeted by Al Jean the other day. Did you? I did. Uh, oh. Because, well you, well, you know I have a flag obsession. So, hmm. so I designed a minimalist flag for The Simpsons. Uh, very much inspired slash ripped off from various other minimalist Simpsons stuff you hmm. see. Where, where, where they're just represented by blocks of colour and uh, yeah I tweeted it at Al Jean and he retweeted it which is which is cool excellent um, was, was there clashing metals in that one or uh, oh yes yes I guess you can't yeah. really can't really avoid that can you uh, uh, yeah yeah well, Homer for a start that's, that's yellow and white right oh, there isn't it exactly exactly can't get away from it I'm afraid see you think I don't listen to you but I put these <laughs> things up it's uh... that's that's the law of tincture Gareth is referring to <laughs> Very good. I'll never remember the name, but yeah. <laughs> okay, so what happens? What happens in the episode? Well, as we join the family, they're watching a movie review show on their cheap Chinese TV. The movie being reviewed? McBain! Mm. The clip features the renegade cop murdering his boss via defenestration, and our first mention of Mendoza! Is it? Yes, although he doesn't shout it this time. Oh, I see. The first mention of the character Mendoza. Absolutely, right, okay. yes, yes. But it has to be shouted at all times, otherwise... Yeah. I see, right. However, the television is not long for this world, and once Dr. TV has put it out of its misery, panic sets in as the family are forced to talk to each other. <laughs> Which in itself is a setup for a flashback. First we see the story of how Homer proposed to Marge. Sort of. And it will be covered later in a way that at least partially contradicts this telling. As a beafroed Dr. Hibbert, continuing his streak of appearances, breaks the news of Marge's first pregnancy to a younger Marge and Homer, the latter of whom bears a striking resemblance to Philip J. Fry from Futurama, hmm. right down to the red jacket. 
The Marge of the Future, from then, which was the present when this was shown, and is the past now, prefers a different flashback to the Springfield of 1974, where the loving couple first met. And we first see high school underachiever Homer driving his awesome, if careworn, car, replete with chain-link steering wheel, to school, so that he and Barney could skip English and go and smoke, on the grounds that he'll never go to England. Although season 15, episode 4, the Regina monologues, that travesty of an episode Mm. featuring war criminal Tony Blair, says otherwise. Yeah. Regrettably. They're busted and sent to detention. Meanwhile, straight-A student Marge is getting a crash course in feminism and really gets into it fast, leading to her getting sent to detention for the first time ever for bra burning, thus throwing our unlikely couple into each other's company for the first time. Homer breaks the no-talking rule to introduce himself to the political prisoner and gets six days extra detention for his efforts. Later, he talks to Grandpa over a bucket of Shakespeare's fried chicken, revealing his attraction to Marge, whereupon we get another excellent proclamation from Abe. Oh, son, don't overreach. Go for the dented car, the dead-end job, the less attractive girl. Oh, I blame myself. I should have had this talk with you a long time ago. Yeah. I, I love that. It, it's, it's just one of the ways which The Simpsons was different from other family comedies. <laughs> it's great. Homer goes for guidance counselling to find out how to date Marge. A great bit where he's uh, trying to remember the alphabet. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and he's asked to consider a career in nuclear power, which he finds laughable. He signs up for the debate team to try to impress her. They're encountering arrogant, self-styled intellectual Artie Ziff, and becoming so wound up that he takes his rebuttal a little more literally than intended. <laughs> Despite his references, Marge is uninterested in dating him, so he sneakily asks her for French tuition in an attempt to get to know her better. Now, in the present day, she seems quite touched by that and amused by it. That was not the case at the time. No. Whilst they have fun and Homer learns a surprising amount of French, and Marge eventually agrees to go to the prom with him, Homer inexplicably shoots himself in the foot by revealing his sinister plot, earning a devastating dumping and a slap for his stupidity. Remarkably, he is so stupid, and this is where the episode falls apart a little bit for me, that he doesn't realise he's been dumped, and comes to collect Marge on the night of the prom, who is wearing her hair up for the first time ever, and has burst blood vessels from pinching her cheeks. Mm, mm. As in the words of her mother, ladies pinch, whores use rouge. Yeah, try and burst some capillaries. Oh, a weird American pronunciation I'd never heard before that episode. Capillaries, capillaries, come on. But Artie has also asked her along, although she seems to have more of an admiration for him than an attraction to him. Homer has spent a lot of money on the night, so he decides to go alone, cutting a tragic figure, whilst Marge and Artie are named prom queen and king. Homer is sure they are made for each other, but Marge is not so sure. Until, and let's not sugarcoat this, Artie sexually assaults her in a parked car. Yes. Leading her to give Homer a ride home. He reveals that when she stops the car, he'll hug and kiss her and never be able to let her go. And he never did. The end. Well, the beginning. Mm. So there we go. First flashback episode. Mm -hmm. Um, Really good evocation of the 70s. Largely through music, which we'll, we'll come to in a bit. Absolutely. Huge amount of music in this episode. Yeah, must have, it, must have cost him a packet for the licenses. Yeah, yeah. 
I don't know if it's because it's ridiculously hot today, but I didn't enjoy that episode as I thought I was as much as I thought I was going to. Mm. If you know what I mean, it's like the episode before is just belly laugh after belly laugh, but but this one, yeah, it's one of those things when you're a bit older and you're you're a bit more aware of what's going on in the world. Some jokes which we'd call problematic today that they got away with back then, you just you just hear them when you're a bit older and you go, Ugh. like like when Marge says, "Oh, I think I should get paid." Uh, uh, I think I should get paid the same as a man, but what if there's heavy lifting or math to do? I believe nowadays we'd call that internalised misogyny. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, it's also a story that didn't necessarily ever have to be told. You never have to have these flashbacks. You, you establish what the situation is mm. through the show itself. Mm. Um, so, yeah, there's, there's a certain amount of, um, I guess, disposability in it it's it's yeah. not telling I don't feel like it's telling a story that is there for comedy's sake either it's a story that's there to fill in gaps yeah. that you wouldn't have noticed were there if they hadn't filled them in in the first place true true um, also, also for us in particular there's no nostalgia value because because we weren't around in the 70s but I'd imagine anyone who was would have got the references and it would have resonated a bit more with a with a slightly older crowd yeah which, to be fair, is a, is another little dip into the Simpsons mo of being the, the cartoon for every age, essentially. Mm. Um, so yeah, I, I'm aware I'm being very critical here, but there's, there's absolutely nothing wrong with it. It's, uh... Yeah. Oh, th- th- there are plenty of funny moments. I mean, my favourite character, and I'm sure you're going to come on to him, is the, is uh, is the chauffeur that that, that Homer uses. <laughs> Uh, I'm not, so knock yourself Are out. You not? <laughs> Are you not? Okay. I mean, obviously he's... But I, I think we were uh, we were discussing this just before we started. He's, he's one of a number of very, very similar characters. I was yeah. very tempted to have him as a character debut, but it, there's no... There's not necessarily a line that connects through those characters. No, he's just... He's 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 just a smart-ass. He's, so, he's sort of like a much more intelligent version of Gil. So... The scenes I can remember, there's one where he tries to sell Lisa a hamster by saying it writes novels. And he is working at the shop when comic book guy, whose full name I've already forgotten, tries to return the Star Trek belt. Yes! I say, I see, do you have a receipt? Quote unquote, sir. <laughs> <laughs> oh, a fat, a fat, sarcastic Star Trek fan. You must be a devil with the ladies. <laughs> So yeah, him him driving the limousine, and he's just a one-liner machine, isn't he? Oh, he's brilliant! He's brilliant. When he when Homer tells him to go to the place where everyone else is making out, and he says, "Well, I'm only paid to drive." That's great. But yeah, it, do you know what? I think I've misjudged this. It, it, even even talking to you now, I realise I've made a mistake by not not uh, looking more into the the genealogy of the the characters. Next time he appears, I'll uh, I'll make sure something's down. Okay. Um, cool. But we've got a ton of character debuts mm. anyway, so I don't think we'll go go uh, poor for those. Yeah. Uh, let's start with Artie Ziff. Oh, okay. Uh, voiced by the excellent John Lovitz. Uh, we'd be here all day if I went into Lovitz's career. Uh, so the most important thing for us is that he will go on to be the voice of one Jay Sherman, 
the titular critic in the Simpsons-adjacent show of the same name. Although I should note that after Phil Hartman's murder, which I know I said I wouldn't be talking about, and I've mentioned now twice in two episodes, but mm-hmm. uh, he actually replaced Hartman in the excellent sitcom News Radio, um, not as the same character, but as a different character in the same general role. So there's okay. a little bit of extra crossover for you. And also, News Radio is great, and you should watch it. Um, Artie is an absolute cretin, and I want to kick his stupid head in every time I see him, uh, which is kind of the point, so they're doing well with the character. Uh, after his busy hands wrecked his only chance of true love, he became a billionaire after inventing a machine that changed modem noise into Muzak. <laughs> now that's a dated reference, and from yeah. within my own lifetime. That's um, really something. Yeah. Um, well, I, I, I remember when I played the dial-up noise in whatever episode it was to, to, to you know as one of those noises that takes you back to the early 90s <laughs> Ugh. I, I, I wish I'd done more while I was young I really mm-hmm. do anyway he'll be back to parody Indecent Proposal in season 13 episode 10 Half Decent Proposal which is a rare example of an episode's title accurately describing its quality Though Lovitz's super creepy rendition of the Eurythmics classic Sweet Dreams Are Made of This is worth the price of admission alone. Mm. Then, when the dot-com bubble bursts, he'll be found living in the Simpsons attic in season 15, episode 14, The Ziff Who Came to Dinner. Which is a very tacked-on appearance, but I can't fault anything that gives us more John Lovitz in the show. There's also Principal Harlan Dondelinger, (laughs) voiced by Harry Shearer who was principal of Springfield High School in 1974. When his wife later passes away, he'll take up teaching night classes, meaning he'll take on double duty in Season 4, Episode 19, The Front, both revealing to Homer that he never passed high school and teaching him Remedial Science 1A. (laughs) And he does have further appearances, but nothing too worthy of note until much later seasons. So I think I'll wait and see if we're still doing the podcast in 25 or so years' time <laughs> before I do any more Dondelinger research. Yeah. I like Dondelinger. He's he's like a toned-down Superintendent Chalmers. Yeah. Yeah. Cut from the same cloth, but mm-hmm. yeah. Um, we also see Marge's dad for the first time. Noted airline steward Clancy Bouvier is the least featured and explored Simpson grandparent, largely due to his death from lung cancer sometime after Lisa's birth. This is based on his appearance in Season 26, Episode 13, Walking Big and Tall, as he's seen in a flashback with a very young Bart and Lisa. Given he rarely appears, he is better known for his effect on Marge, which seems somewhat less brutal than that of Jacqueline, but did accidentally gift her a fear of flying. Mm. He is mentioned in two quite memorable scenes. He's Marge's inspiration for the swear jar in Season 3, Episode 16, Bart the Lover, as the swearing he picked up in the Navy nearly cost him his job as a baby photographer. (laughs) (laughs) That was when they could write jokes. That's great. Also, when he was trying to woo Jacqueline, he sent her a box of candy with his photo in. Oh, yes. A stunt recreated by Homer in Season 6, Episode 25, Who Shot Mr. Burns Part 1. And for the first time, accepting one tiny flashback to Marge's childhood in Season 1, Episode 6, Moaning Lisa... We also spend some time with younger versions of the adult cast, comprising this time Homer, Barney, Patty, Selma, and Marge, and a less ancient Abe and Jacqueline. 
Later episodes, particularly season 18, episode 13, Springfield Up, will use the popular television trope of having younger versions of the whole extended cast of characters attending the same school. And later visions will show Lenny, Carl, Moe and Homer in particular to have had pre-existing relationships in their youth. Mm. This episode doesn't show any of that, largely because a lot of the secondary characters either didn't exist or didn't have the level of character development necessary to inform a flashback version of themselves. I think the narrow ensemble also embiggens the atmosphere of this more intimately focused episode. Mm, definitely. And finally, Radier Wolfcastle as McBain. Herr Wolfcastle was originally created for Season 2, Episode 15, Oh Brother, Where Art Thou?, which was at least partially written first, despite being produced later than this episode. He's mainly voiced by Harry Shearer, though his debut as a child actor in a Bratverst advert is voiced by Hank Azaria in Season 8, Episode 13. Oh, Christ, here we go. Simpson Califragilistic Expiala Annoyed Gruntious. <laughs> Radier is, let's face it, Arnold Schwarzenegger. Yeah. Much in the same way as the Quimby's Echo the Kennedys or Booberella is a clone of Elvira, Wolfcastle will usually act in parallel to public opinion of, or the career moves of, the Austrian Oak himself. Mm-hmm. So he's got into comedy, joined the Republican Party, had numerous comebacks and scandals, and he's even had his very own Batman and Robin in the shape of the eventually unreleased turn as Radioactive Man in the adaptation of said <laughs> comic book. But despite this character essentially being Arnie, in the Simpsons movie, Arnold Schwarzenegger himself is depicted as the President of the United States. Which, bizarrely, I take right now. Yeah. With Wolfcastle's basic character model and Harry Shearer doing the Wolfcastle voice, <laughs> but being Arnold Schwarzenegger. It's definitely not the same character as Wolfcastle also appears in the movie. Mm. But what is an actor without his films? Let's close with a brief look at his filmography. There's at least seven McBain films, including McBain for Fatal Discharge and <laughs> McBain Let's Get Silly, which is just him doing stand-up in front of a wall and cost $80 million. Mm-hmm. I Shoot Your Face and I Shoot Your Face Again. <laughs> and from his unfortunate comedy period, Undercover Nerd, Mrs. Mum and My Baby is an Ugly Man, co-starring <laughs> Rob Schneider. <laughs> Brilliant. Yeah, we'll be we'll be seeing a lot more of uh, Wolf Castle. Um, yeah, and yeah. One, one of the one of the, my favourite peripheral characters of the yeah. Simpsons. Not not an original uh, creation in many ways, so loses a few points for that. But yeah. you know, it's uh, it's 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 not my favourite film title. But uh, my favourite film title is Troy McClure in The President's Neck Is Missing. Yes, <laughs> that's genius. <laughs> and dial M for murderousness. <laughs> Okay, so I think we're on to the uh, onto the did you knows now. Mm-hmm. So, um, did you know? Well, obviously you're going to know this. There's a ton of songs in this one. Oh, yes. Um, which makes sense. Uh, licenses will have been costly, but it's great shorthand for setting a scene in a small amount of time. Not all of them are that noteworthy, but I will give you a few of the more interesting ones from our perspective. So we get the Joker, a 1973 single by the Steve Miller Band. And by the way, he does sing Pompatus of Love. <laughs> and Pompatus is not really a word, but that's another story. Okay. So this isn't Simpsons related, but in researching this, I found out that the 
first verse of the song is actually a load of callbacks to previous Steve Miller band songs. Oh, good lord. So if you'll indulge me, I'm going to rock this Mr. Bergstrom style. Oh, all right. Some people call me the Space Cowboy. Space Cowboy was a track from their 1969 album, Brave New World. Some call me the Gangster of Love. Gangster of Love was a track on their 1968 album, Sailor. Some people call me Maurice. Because I speak with the pompous of love. Enter Maurice as a track from their 1972 album, Recall the Beginning, A Journey from Eden, in which the titular character actually does speak of the pompous of love. Okay. So there we go. A very self-referential song that hinted at a wider Steve Miller band universe and continuity that would eventually resolve itself in the 1988 comic crossover Crisis on Infinite Steve Miller Bands. Blimey. Either that or I've been drinking too much lately. Anyway, back on track. The Carpenters. Brackets, they long to be, close brackets, close to you. Released May 1970. As eschewed by Homer in favour of the Joker but heard in his head when he first sees her, and later used as Marge's prom queen dance. Also, this will be used as Marge's favourite doorbell chime in Season 10, Episode 17, <laughs> Maximum Homer Drive. Nice. When Senor Ding Dong appears, that character we all know and love. <laughs> I, I, I actually really like that song. I'm going to lose all my punk cred again. I don't yeah. think I've got much left after doing this podcast for 25 episodes, but it's... Uh... Well, it's one of those song- songs that's just played a lot, and it's played to illustrate any sort of, you know, love at first sight scenes, essentially. So, yeah, obviously they're going to use it here because it fits the era, and it's, you know, as soon as you hear that, da-ding, ding, da-ding, ding, it's like, oh, right, okay, you've got two people going to fall in love then. Yeah. There you are. Zoom, straight in there. Leaves it rife for subversion as well. Mm-hmm. Um... There was also The Streak by Ray Stevens. That was released in March 1974 and is played appropriately during Barney's streak at the prom. It features, of course, on The Best of Ray Stevens featuring The Streak, Homer's copy of which was buried by the dog and definitely not by March in Season 6, Episode 20, 2001 Greyhounds. (laughs) We also get to hear... Uh, Goodbye Yellow Brick Road, as made famous by Elton John, which was released in October 1973. It's also a very good song, probably my favourite of his. And the parent album also contains Saturday Night's All Right for Fighting and Benny and the Jets. The latter of which is paraphrased in Season 3, Episode 17 of Futurama, A Pharaoh to Remember. Also, Candle in the Wind is on that album. Oh, right, okay. Long time before it came to prominence. Red Dwight himself will appear in Season 10, Episode 14, I'm With Cupid, but the version in this episode is performed by the Larry Davis Experience, who we first saw in Season 1, Episode 13, Some Enchanted Evening. And this episode also includes Tim Worthington's favourite song, The Hustle by Van McCoy. This song, with its spectacular intro that unfortunately resolves itself into, well, The Hustle, was released in April... 1975?! Ooh, dear, oh dear. Boy, I hope someone got fired for that blunder. <laughs> and in closing, I'll just note that uh, Selma's, shall we say, enthusiasm at seeing handsome Artie come to the door eventually pays off in season 15, episode 14, The Ziff Who Came to Dinner. 
And that is the way we was. Nice. And now, uh, on to the way that this was. Yes, the way that Somalia was. So, so this time I'm going to be talking about Somalia, and we're in the Horn of Africa, so the very northeast of the continent. Now, Somalia itself covers the actual corner of the Horn, as it were, which is the very northeastern extremity. To the west of the south of Somalia, because Somalia is kind of L-shaped, so to the west of the south of Somalia is Kenya, or Kenya, if you're English and posh. To the west of the centre of Somalia is Ethiopia, a large landlocked country that almost seems to protrude into Somalia. To the northwest of Somalia is the small port of Djibouti, and further on from there is Eritrea, a thin country that takes up a big chunk of the Red Sea coast. The region is hugely important for international trade because the Red Sea is the gateway to arguably the most important canal in the world. Now, you know I love a good canal. In fact, episode four of this podcast features one heavily. Do you remember which one? It was the Panama Canal, wasn't the it? Panama Canal, yes. But this isn't the Panama Canal because no. it's nowhere near Panama. That's right, that's right. So if you go north along the coast from Eritrea, you go past Sudan, then Egypt, and you get up to the Suez Canal. So the Suez Canal, then. I know I'm only on my first page of notes, but I want to talk about this canal. (laughs) Okay, it runs from the city of Suez in the south up to Port Said in the north. And the canal links the Red Sea to the Mediterranean, providing a massive shortcut for ships going between Europe and the Indian Ocean. So without the canal, ships would have to go all the way around Africa, adding around 5,000 miles to their journeys. And like the Panama Canal, the Suez Canal took 10 years to construct, but it opened around 50 years earlier. 50 years earlier than the Panama Canal, anyway, which was in 1869. It was owned by Britain and France until 1956, when the president of Egypt, Gamal Abdel Nasser, decided to nationalise it, unilaterally bringing the canal under the control of the Egyptian state. This led to the Suez Crisis... And I really need to find an excuse to go over this in detail, but in a nutshell, this happened. So in an attempt to gain control of the canal, Israel invaded Egypt. They were later supported by Britain and France. They took control of the canal itself, but Egypt still had control of the port, so the canal itself was useless. However, following pressure from the USA and USSR, which included President Eisenhower threatening to damage the British economy by selling their pound sterling bonds, the UK, France and Israel pulled back. The UK was humiliated, and Prime Minister Anthony Eden resigned. The episode marked the end of Britain as a world power, as essentially the UK was being bossed around by the new post-war superpowers, the USA and USSR. It's also very pertinent today, as the undying fuster cluck that is Brexit is often compared to the Suez Crisis. So, you know, the Suez Crisis is the biggest national humiliation since Tuesday at the moment. It really is that bad. Pretty Patel's foreign secretary. Oh, dear. Now, come on. We've, we've got a heat wave on at the moment. Where's your bulldog spirit? Yeah. Uh, right. Anyway, history. So that's how important this area is to international trade. So onto the history of Somalia. In around 2500 BC, Somalia was believed to be host to the fabled Land of Punt, home of an ancient people who traded with the Egyptians. In the classical era, Herodotus recorded the area as being home to the Macrobian people, a people so rich they were said to shackle their prisoners with gold chains. 
I like it. I like hearing about the land of punt because I just think of punt and Dennis. Yeah. <laughs> I could tell that's where you were going as well. It's been a, it's been a little while since I managed to work a nineties alternative comedy reference into one of these episodes. So uh, yeah. I, I think I'm going to count that as a victory. Okay. So. Um, yeah, and these days there's a region of Somalia called Puntland. Ah, might be pronounced punt. I'm not sure. So anyway, so Islam was introduced into the region shortly after Islam was founded, and some mosques in Somalia date back to the sixth century. From then on, the region was dominated by various sultanates, up to the Sultanate of Hobyo in the 19th century. Towards the end of the 19th century, the European powers rushed to colonise the continent in what became known as the Scramble for Africa. British involvement in Somalia became official in 1884, when the British Protectorate of Somaliland was established, following the signing of several treaties with Somali sultans. Now, it didn't cover the whole of modern-day Somalia, just a smallish area in the northwest. The British administered it from Aden, which is a British colony on the south coast of the Arabian Peninsula, now part of Yemen. So we're going across the water here. The region was resource-poor and not considered that important. Its key role was to keep Aden supplied with meat. Therefore, the British nicknamed it Aden's Butcher's Shop, one of the few times in history where the word butcher refers to meat. Yeah. Yeah, I would have thought that would have been a battle reference of some mm, sort. Mm. So opposition to British rule was immediate, and it came in the form of the Dervish. This was a sunny Islam state established by Muhammad Abdullah Hassan, who the British dubbed the Mad Mullah. The Dervish successfully pushed back the British several times and kept them to the coast, before the British finally defeated them in 1920. France also had colonial interests in the region. In 1883, the French signed a treaty with the Afar Sultanate, which established French Somaliland. It was much smaller in size than British Somaliland, and it gave France the port city of Djibouti on the Gulf of Aden, vitally important for that sweet, sweet Suez Canal trade. West down the coast in Eritrea, and along the east coast of Somalia, the Italians had moved in. The first Italian settlers arrived in what was to become Eritrea and Italian Somaliland in 1880. In 1889, the general Oreste Baratieri occupied the coastal and highland regions and proclaimed the colony of Italian Eritrea. The Italians formed an alliance with King Menelik of Shewa, who conquered his enemy's territories, including the Oromo, and declared himself the emperor of Ethiopia. You know, because that, that was quite a common thing for for the European colonisers to do. Sort of have an alliance with one group who would then, you know, defeat and then control the other groups and then they'd have a nice little pally thing going where um, the European power would supply the ruling people with guns, weapons, whatever, and and they would in turn control the region for them, essentially. Yeah. So all was well between the Italians and Ethiopians until 1896, when the first Italo-Ethiopian war broke out. The two sides fought the Battle of Adwa, which saw the Ethiopians come out on top. In 1913, Lij Iyasu, the grandson of Menelik II, became the emperor-designate of Ethiopia, but was never crowned. Iyasu was considered unfit to rule by conservatives who were against his conversion to Islam, and he was deposed because Ethiopia at the time was Christian. Hmm. Menelik II's daughter became Empress Zuditu. 
She appointed an Ethiopian nobleman who claimed to be descended from the Queen of Sheba to be her regent and successor. That man was Tafari Makanan, and he was given the title of regent, or Ras, making him Ras Tafari. Ah! See where we're going here? Yeah, now I do. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Shortly afterwards, a boy going by the name of Mohammed Said Bare happened to be born in the city of Shilabo in the east of Ethiopia. In 1930, Empress Zuditu died and Rastafare succeeded her, becoming the Emperor Haile Selassie. So there we are. You've got a very important uh, person who is, who is revered in Rastafarianism. Yes. But, yeah, that's that's the name. That's where the name of the religion comes from, Ras Tafari. Right, okay, because he's, he's normally referred to as Haile Selassie, obviously. Oh, yeah, so, uh, yeah. 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 Me, me having not really scratched the surface of that one. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that, that's a good, good little uh, fact there. Mm-hmm. I have to remember that one. By this time, noted fascist and Alexei Sale lookalike Benito Mussolini had taken control of Italy and was looking to expand its territory into a new Roman Empire. Italy invaded and occupied Ethiopia in 1935. Selassie appealed to the League of Nations and ended up being Time Man of the Year. Italian rule continued until World War II, when the combined forces of the British and Ethiopian armies drove the Italians out. Also in 1935, Said Bare, whose parents had died when he was 10, moved to Mogadishu, then the capital of Italian Somaliland. He enrolled in the colonial police, lying about his place of birth in order to get in. Because he was born in Ethiopia. Hmm. He became a Zaptii, I hope that's how you say that, a kind of local policeman slash soldier, and became fluent in Italian. It's not confirmed, but it's believed that he fought for Italy against Ethiopia in the Second Italo-Ethiopian War. He obtained the rank of Major General, the highest possible back then. After the war, British Somaliland continued as a British protectorate, and Italian Somaliland became a United Nations Trust territory under Italian administration for a designated period of 10 years. Much to the dismay of the Somalis, the British transferred the regions of Hout and Ogaden to Ethiopia. Meanwhile, Barre travelled to Florence, and rather than taking the sights and propose to his girlfriend, as I did, he spent two years at a police school. When Italy's UN mandate ran out, British and Italian Somaliland merged to become Somalia, an independent republic. A couple of years earlier, a referendum was held in French Somaliland to determine if they should join it. The French and Afar were against the idea, and following suppression of the Somali vote, the referendum result agreed, so the territory stayed under French control. The new Somali Republic was founded in 1960, with Aden Abdullah Osman Dar as its first president, and Abdirashid Ali Shermake as Prime Minister. Said Bari became Vice Commander of the Army. The country ratified its constitution via a referendum in 1961. For a time, Somalia did relatively well economically, earning the epithet the Switzerland of Africa. However, this didn't last. In 1967, Prime Minister Shemanke became President, and on October 15, 1969, he was assassinated by his own bodyguard. Oh. The day after his funeral, the military took control of the country in an otherwise bloodless coup, as they faced no armed opposition. Said Bare, who by this time had risen to the rank of Major General, was head of the army and so became president, assuming the title of Victorious Leader. Ah, another great leader title. Yes, yes. No, 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 leader. <laughs> anyway. 
Before the coup, Barre spent time with Soviet officials in joint training exercises and became a Marxist. And what do all good Marxists do when they come to power? Um, start killing people? There's that. But he also raised the literacy rate. Ah, right, OK. Mm-hmm. So along with this, the Supreme Revolutionary Council that Barre headed set about nationalising industry. They also worked to forge relations with Arab countries, and Somalia joined the Arab League in 1974. So Barre's government with this weird mix of 60s and 70s style socialism, Somali nationalism and Islamism. Barre also had a stint as chairman of the Organisation of African Unity, the predecessor to the African Union. In 1976, Barre disbanded the Supreme Revolutionary Council and replaced it with Somali Revolutionary Socialist Party. I just got that out. (laughs) Which effectively turned Somalia from a direct dictatorship to a one-party state. Barre believed in a greater Somalia. European colonisation and various wars had left the country fragmented, and in an attempt to expand the territory of the Somali government, Barre started the Ogaden War in 1977. As you may remember, the British had given Ogaden to Ethiopia after World War II. By this time, the political situation was very complex. So in 1974, the worldwide oil crisis triggered a crisis in Ethiopia, which experienced food shortages and high petrol prices. Haile Selassie, still emperor at the age of 82, was imprisoned by the Derg, a group of army officers sympathetic to the Soviet Union. Selassie was strangled in his bed, and the Derg took control of the country. So by going to war with Ethiopia in 1977, Barre was going to war not against a country with an imperial ruler, but against a country ruled by communists. Where he could once have relied on the Soviet Union for support, in 1977 that just wasn't the case. The Soviets stopped supplying Somalia with aid, and instead supported Ethiopia. 15,000 troops from Cuba joined the Ethiopian cause, and they quickly pushed for Somali troops back from the Ogaden. In the fallout from the Ogaden War, some members of the armed forces attempted a coup against Barre that failed. The alleged plotters were rounded up and executed. Barre flirted with democracy in 1979, when a new constitution was written and elections were held for a People's Assembly. However, the Assembly had no real power and Barre's party maintained control. The next year, the Assembly was disbanded altogether. So the Ogaden War proved a turning point for Barre and Somalia, and the 80s would turn out to be very different from the 70s. Having been snubbed by the Soviet Union, Barre turned to the United States. And for this time, his credentials were very good. The Reagan administration didn't care about him being a military dictator, with blood on his hands, but his struggles against a Soviet-backed power were noted. To this end, the states supplied Barre Somalia with $100 million in economic and military aid every year for the whole of the 80s. In 1986, Barre was involved in a near-fatal car accident. He was being driven in Mogadishu during a storm. The driver lost control and Barre's car ploughed into the back of a bus. Although Barre was in hospital in Saudi Arabia for over a month, he maintained power through his vice-president, Mohammed Ali Samatar. In 1986, Barre started a genocidal campaign against the ISAC in the north, a clan whose members composed of the Somali National Movement who wanted independence from Somalia. Thousands were executed and the city of Bureo was razed to the ground. So yeah, he's a genocidal bastard. Oh great. Mm, afraid so. I did, I, did, I did warn. I did warn. 
Towards the end of the 80s, a combination of factors, including the ISARC genocide, brought down the Barre regime. The foreign of the Cold War diminished Somalia's strategic importance, so the US were less keen to fund it. Neighbouring Ethiopia, still under the control of the communist Derg, supported various insurgency groups, including the Somali Salvation Democratic Front, United Somalia Congress, Somali National Movement, Somali Patriotic Movement. I'm pretty confident Life of Brian wasn't popular in Somalia. Meanwhile, Barre's government was becoming increasingly authoritarian and banned gatherings of more than four people. Inflation took hold, with pasta, an important staple, remember, Italian influence, hitting $5 a kilo. It reached that point where people started paying for basic things with huge wadges of cash. Don't know if you ever saw that in news reports from Zimbabwe. So, newspaper, yeah, there you go, chunk. Yeah. yeah. Not even going to bother count. Yeah, yeah, what a notes that'll do. Right. In 1991, civil war broke out. Realising he could not hold on to power, Barre commandeered a tank and drove it from his palace to his stronghold near the Kenyan border. From there, he regrouped and attempted to retake Mogadishu, but his forces were overwhelmed by those of the United Somalia Congress. Barre initially fled to Nairobi, Kenya, but Somalis there protested against his presence there, and he fled to Lagos, Nigeria. He had an uneventful exile, and died of a heart attack in 1995. He left behind a legacy of authoritarian rule, repression, and genocide. But he got to, you know, live out his life and died of a heart attack. Lucky him. He didn't get a bazooka in the side of his car. No. Like other people have. Oh. Yeah. Is it wrong that that's slightly disappointing? Yeah, it is a bit. It is a bit. Mass-murdering dictator dies of a heart attack. Ugh. Yeah. Meanwhile in Somalia, Barre was gone, but the success of his regime was far from clear, as he'd left a power vacuum. There was infighting in the USC, and rival commanders Ali Mahdi Mohammed and Mohammed Farah Aided fought for control of Mogadishu. Next door in Djibouti, an international peace conference was held, but this was boycotted by Aided as he wasn't recognised as the leader of the USC. This gave legitimacy in the eyes of the world to Ali Mahdi Mohammed, and with international support, he became the next president of Somalia. However, his power only really extended to Mogadishu and coastal regions. Elsewhere in the country, power rested with local militia groups. Also, the Somali national movement held power in the north of the country, roughly where British Somaliland was. In June 1991, they declared independence from Somalia as Somaliland. Although the country is not internationally recognised, it has been relatively stable. The same cannot be said for the rest of the country. In September 1991, fighting broke out in Mogadishu and the surrounding areas, and thousands of people were killed. This disrupted agriculture, which in turn led to starvation. The international community responded by supplying Somalia with food, but a lot of this was stolen by the militias who would trade the food for weapons. So unsurprisingly, millions fled the country under those circumstances. In 1992, the UN created the UN Operation in Somalia, known by the catchy acronym UNOSOM. This was a peacekeeping mission led by the United States in support of Ali Mahdi Mohammed's government. A peace conference was set up in Addis Ababa with 15 Somali factions represented. Once again, Aided did not attend, believing that the UN was conspiring against him. He started broadcasting anti-US and anti-UN propaganda in Mogadishu. The US made Aided public enemy number one, offering a reward for his capture. Shortly afterwards, the events of Bloody Monday occurred. 
the US received a tip-off that Aided was present at a meeting of Somali elders. An American attack helicopter proceeded to fire on the building with missiles and its machine gun. Dozens were killed, including four journalists who were killed by an angry mob when they went to cover it. The event helped to turn the people of Mogadishu against the USA. Weeks later, President Clinton approved a task force to go to Somalia. This was followed by the Battle of Mogadishu, but the events of that incident are covered by the film Black Hawk Down. Ah. So I won't go into, go into them here. So following that, the US pulled out of Somalia. And, you know, I, 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 I view that as being pretty humiliating for the states really because you know they've got attack helicopters which were downed by aided forces and uh yeah the pilots got dragged through the streets and after that they went well okay (laughs) not sticking around here yeah from then on somalia continued to be leaderless and some have called it a failed state despite continued efforts to reconcile the various factions and form a cohesive government these efforts resulted in the transitional national government in 2000 However, 2006 saw the rise of the Islamic Courts Union in the south, who imposed Sharia law. However, with the help of Ethiopian troops, the group was ousted and the transitional government took control. The breakdown in the rule of law has resulted in a very unwelcome phenomenon, piracy. While Somalia had a government, it had trade agreements in regards to fishing with other countries in order to develop its fishing industry. It also had a navy that could protect it. Following the start of the Civil War, all of this went. Other fishing vessels moved in, took what they wanted, and also did things like dump their waste on the unguarded Somali coast. To put a stop to this, Somali fishermen banded together and armed themselves. Their initial aims were to deter foreign fishing vessels, but they quickly realised that they could get hefty ransoms by boarding the boats and taking their occupants captives. Over the years, millions have been paid in ransoms, and it's even been an inspiration for the 2013 film Captain Phillips. So that's the source of the meme, look at me, I'm the captain now. And that from a few years ago. So there we are, a very brief overview of the history of Somalia. Like other stories, I wish this one had a happy ending, but at least for genocidal dictator Said Bare's dead, eh? Yeah, yeah, I mean, something to take away. Mm. Something to take away. Yeah, and, w- and once again, there's lots of stuff I didn't get onto. I was thinking, should I talk about what happened in Eritrea in the early 90s? Because Eritrea and Ethiopia used to be one country. And then sometime in the 90s, I can't remember exactly when, Eritrea uh, declared independence. And it left Ethiopia without a coastline. You just have to look at it on the map and just go, that's going to be causing problems for them, surely. They haven't got any ports now. Yeah, that's that's never going to be convenient, is it? Mm. No, no. Um, also, I've got to put, put in a couple of flag facts. So, Haile Selassie, his flag was red, yellow and green. And that was such, that was such an influence on the rest of the continent that those colours are known as the Pan-African colours. <laughs> and every country in Africa has got one of those colours in its flag, apart from one. And that is Somalia. Oh. Which has a white star on a, on a, on a blue field. Right, okay. Wow, that, that's a hell of a flag fact there. Mm-hmm. It's also the, the red, yellow and green have been taken sort of further into Rastafari uh, culture, haven't they? Oh, yeah, so, yeah. Yeah. Very much the calling card there. So. Yeah, yeah, exactly. 
I've seen plenty of pictures of Bob Marley with red, yellow, and green on them. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're the colours of Rastafarianism, Pan Africanism, if you can call it that. And Karma Chameleon. Uh, uh, yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm pretty sure that the Rastafarian hat that Homer wears at Hullabalooza, I'm sure that's that's that colour as well. Yeah. So yeah. there we are. And it's been brought round to The Simpsons quite nicely. Excellent. Excellent. Well, on that note, uh, we'd best, uh, best leave you to it. But don't forget, you can find us at retrospecticus.org and on Apple Podcasts and Stitcher. Still not Spotify. I'm working on it. I seriously <laughs> am. And you can follow us on Twitter at underscore retrospecticus. Email us at podcast at retrospecticus.org and check out the number ones playlist on Spotify, which won't have 3am Eternal on it after this week. Unless anyone can find it. And if you can, email us at podcast at retrospectacles.org. <laughs> if you like what we're doing, please leave us a preferably five-star review anywhere you possibly can. Thanks for listening. Cheers, everyone. See you next time. Bye. Bye.